You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Welcome all. If you'd like to open the Bibles to John chapter 6. I said last week that the uh, that we'd come to probably the most difficult passage in John's Gospel to understand and to interpret. It's the part where Jesus talks about his flesh being true bread and his blood being true drink. And he goes on to say then that we all must eat his flesh and drink his blood if we're to have eternal life. If you don't grasp what he's saying, you'll have a similar sort of reaction to his original hearers who said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It sounds like he's advocating cannibalism. Today's text is a difficult one too, but this time it's difficult for different reasons. This time it's not so much that his words are hard to understand. It's uh, They're not really. They're actually fairly straightforward. In fact, they probably seem too easy to understand. The difficulty this time, though, is accepting and believing what he says. But Jesus says something that seems to rattle the dearly held beliefs of many Christians today. So let's back up a little bit, shall we? John's Gospel seems to be an almost depressing record of ignorance, misunderstanding, rejection and unbelief. We've worked our way through page after page and chapter after chapter of John's Gospel, seeing people who either don't understand what Jesus is saying or flat out reject what he's saying. And sadly, there's no relief from it here in John chapter 6, which seems strange. The reason John wrote this gospel is, in his own words, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And yet what John has shown us so far in his gospel is a conga line of people who either can't or won't believe. And spoiler alert, Things don't get any better in the rest of this gospel. But we shouldn't be all doom and gloom about it, of course. Some people do believe, although they're relatively few and far between. And maybe before we get into our text today, we should review who has and who has not put their trust in Jesus so far in this gospel. John 1.11 tells us that he, that is Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That verse sets the stage for the whole of John's gospel and indeed for most of the last 2,000 years. It's not that Jesus' mission was entirely a failure, though. The next two verses in John chapter 1 tell us that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, not born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. That's important for us to notice, for it ties in with what we'll be looking at today. For our text today gives us some insight into why some people refuse to receive him and why others believe and are saved. By continuing uh, continuing our review, later in the first chapter, Jesus begins to collect his first followers, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel and others. The Gospels reveal to us the journey that these men went on towards belief. And sometimes they seem to 
misunderstand and not believe as well. Sometimes they just don't get it. Sometimes it tells us, I think in Mark's gospel, that their hearts were hardened. In John chapter 2, after the miracle of turning water in the wine, John tells us that his disciples believed in him. But many times, Jesus seems exasperated by how slow they are to cotton on. And at least once, Jesus rebukes one of them, Simon Peter, by telling him, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. The path towards faith for those closest to Jesus seems convoluted. One of them, Judas, of course, even after spending three years with him, rejected Jesus outright and sold him out to the authorities to be executed. Then when Jesus chased all the merchants and the money changers out of the temple in John 2, the the Jews misunderstood his claims and rejected his teaching. But John then goes on to tell us that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But when you look a bit further on at how many stood by his side at his trial and his execution, you have to wonder about the substance of their belief. It's clear that not many of them would have had what we would call saving faith. They were fascinated and captivated by the miracles, not by the man himself. When the chips were down, they abandoned him. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, learned Pharisee and respected teacher, couldn't get his head around Jesus either. Jesus spoke to him in some depth about the necessity of being born again. But Nicodemus didn't understand and he left more confused than ever. The first time we see any evidence of someone actually putting their trust in Jesus Christ is in Samaria with the woman at the well and uh, her fellow townsfolk in John chapter 4. Interestingly, they all believed on the basis of the word that Jesus spoke to them without any need of miracles. That's worth remembering when we get into our text today. Jesus then goes into his home region of Galilee where people refuse to believe in him unless he performs signs and wonders for them. There's only one person, the royal official, who takes Jesus at his word and believes. And he receives the miracle of his son being healed. And the result is that his whole family believed in Jesus also. But none of the rest of the crowd put their trust in him. Then in John chapter 5, Jesus heals the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, who, although he's been paralysed for 38 years, shows his gratitude by dobbing Jesus into the authorities. The Pharisees then confront Jesus, who gives them some pretty clear proofs of who he is, but they reject everything he has to say. And far from believing in him, they plot to kill him instead. So that brings us to... Chapter 6, Jesus fills the bellies of the multitude with only five loaves and two fish. He heals untold numbers of them, and he teaches them all day long about the kingdom of God. And even they don't get it. They follow him the next day to get another feed, not because they believe he's the son of God, but because they want their bellies filled. It's a sad refrain so far. I don't have any statistics to be precise, but it seems that there's one here and a few there who actually come to believe in Jesus in a saving faith kind of way. 
And that's out of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, who don't understand who or, or who flat out reject him. This leads us to our text today where Jesus explains the reason why some believe and why some don't. And be warned, this can be a bit confusing too. Some of the things Jesus says don't seem to fit into our nicely formed theological categories. That means it may not be a comfortable text to read either, for it says some things that many people today find hard to accept and to believe, which is the same problem vast numbers of Jesus' contemporaries had back in the day. So if you open up to John 6, we'll start at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. You would think this whole passage would be a great comfort to Christians everywhere, but that's not always the case. There are a couple of phrases in there that are comforting, to be sure, if they're taken in isolation, but the whole passage seems to say something controversial. Not that Jesus was any stranger to controversy, though. In fact, he was the one who usually stirred it up. Let's consider a couple of the statements that Jesus makes here. In verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And in verse 44, he says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Sounds awfully like Jesus is talking about some sort of doctrine of election. For those unfamiliar with theological terms and concepts, election basically is that God chooses who he wants to choose when he wants to choose to save. Let's explain what it doesn't mean. Just by way of contrast, in spite of all the recent attention on elections here in Australia and especially in the US, biblical election has nothing to do with taking a vote. Some have tried to explain biblical election in that sort of way, even using it as an evangelistic tool. You've probably heard it yourself at some stage. God votes for you. The devil votes against you. 
you have the deciding vote. Who will you cast your vote with, God or the devil? It's nonsense, of course. But worse than nonsense, it's deceptively wrong. But it sounds pretty logical. So what is wrong with it? For starters, it's nothing like what the Bible calls election. Salvation is not a democratic process. And even if it were, who says the devil gets a vote? He's not even a citizen. He has no voting rights. But let's assume for a moment the process does work that way. Let's assume that the devil votes against you, as we know he will. And at this point in your life, you have no interest in God. You don't want to follow God. So you vote against yourself as well. That's two negative votes. How can God overcome that? Well, simply by casting his three votes as a trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now the vote count is three votes for, two against. God wins. Salvation is guaranteed for everyone. Everyone gets saved. Except they don't. We know they don't. We see all around us people who not only lack interest in God, but who actively hate God, who work with all their might to get God out of their lives and out of society. So, of course, that whole voting concept of election is rubbish. It always has been and it always will be. If you hear people using that as an evangelistic tool, tell them to stop. Another problem with the voting idea of election is that dead people don't get to vote. You have no voting rights if you're dead. And according to the Bible, when election time rolls around, you are dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't get to the election booth. And even if someone someone were to wheel your coffin up to the polling booth, you won't be allowed to vote. And that's a problem the whole world faces, not just us. We are all dead, according to the Bible. Not one of us is alive and able to make the decision necessary to come to God to be saved. We have roughly the same ability to walk out of our tombs as poor old Lazarus had four days after they put him in there. That's a story John records later in this gospel in chapter 11. As you'll recall, if Jesus, who seemed to be in no particular hurry to get there, If Jesus hadn't gone up to the tomb and called out, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus would still be there to this day. We could all wait until the cows come home. And Lazarus was not going to come out under his own steam because he was dead. The Bible makes it pretty clear that no one has the ability to come to God in their natural state. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and in Paul's mind that includes every person on the planet, all, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Did you hear how emphatic Paul was? None, not one, no one, not even one. The natural disposition of every person on the planet is rebellion, isolation and enmity towards God. We are by nature strangers and aliens to God. What all this means is exactly what Paul said in Romans 3 and exactly what Jesus says here in John 6. We will never, if left to our own devices and our own desires, we will never come seeking Christ for salvation. We will never believe. And both Paul and Jesus lay the blame for not not believing squarely at the feet of the individual. No one else is to blame. Not your parents, not your upbringing, not even God. You are to blame for your refusal to come to Christ. If left up to our own free will, we will never choose to believe. For our our will is only free to do what we want it to do. And the last thing that mankind's corrupted nature wants to do is submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So coming to Christ goes against everything in our moral nature. We want to do what we want to do, not what someone else tells us we must do. And we certainly don't want anyone else to rule over us. Imagine this scenario by way of illustration. There used to be a show on TV called Fear Factor. Have you heard of that one or seen that one? I actually spotted it on the TV guide just last night. It's a show where a number of ordinary people do tasks that either terrify them, repulse them, or make them want to vomit. And some of the tasks are nausea-inducing just to watch, let alone to actually do. Put your face in a tub of live maggots or hairy spiders. Eat raw brains or live cockroaches. Sit in a bathtub full of writhing snakes. Now, none of these tasks are impossible to do. They weren't asked the contestants to fly to the moon by flapping their wings or to swim underwater across the Pacific Ocean without any breathing apparatus. All of the tasks are possible to do, but all of it goes against what their mind and their body is screaming at them to do. Who amongst us would choose to do these sorts of things for fun? They're foreign to us, especially in Western cultures, but probably in every culture, those sorts of things are foreign to us. It's an imperfect illustration, but I think it's a helpful illustration. We could all do these things if we wanted to. The problem is none of us would want to. We would be all unwilling to do them. It goes against our nature to do things that we consider repulsive. In a similar way, Jesus was asking his hearers to do things that they did not want to do, things that went against their nature. Receive him, eat his flesh, look to him, drink his blood, believe in him, believe that he is the Messiah. 
believe that he is God. It's not that they were unable to do these things. They were unwilling. Their failure, their inability was not a physical inability. Nor was it intellectual in spite of the fact that Jesus often said confusing things, hard to understand things. Their inability was moral. These things went against their desire to do things their own way, to be independent, to be in charge of their own lives, to fend for themselves, to admit that they're not really independent after all. And that's the problem for all of us. We declare our independence from God in infancy, even if we don't remember it. We're disobedient from before we can remember How old is a child before she learns disobedience, before he begins to refuse to turn his face away from the spoonful of food that mum tries to give him? Disobedience is our nature. Disobedience to parents, to authority, disobedience to God. It's our nature to rebel and to disobey. We can, of course, thank Adam for that. He set the ball rolling of disobedience and rebellion back in the Garden of Eden, and we willingly keep it rolling to this day. Rebellion is the spiritual DNA that we inherit from Adam. So as I said, our our inability to come to Christ is moral. We don't want to come. If you and I, or any other person for that matter, is ever going to seek God, they're ever going to come to Christ, Something must change. Something must be done. Something a dead man can't do for himself. We need a new desire. We need a desire for Christ that outweighs all the other attractions and all the comforts of this life and this world. And this is just what happens to make us come to Christ. God changes us. It has to be done by God. We're unable to do it. Remember the verse I quoted from John 1 earlier, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How do you born yourself the first time, let alone born again yourself? It's impossible. It's nonsense. But it is something God can do. Back in Ezekiel 36, God promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's how it is that we come to Christ. That's what makes us believe God changes our heart. He changes our desires. 
He changes our nature. We don't have the power to do it. We need him to do it for us. To use the language that Jesus uses here in John 6, the Father draws us. He puts a new heart within us, a new spirit that sees in Christ all the excellencies and perfections that we so long for deep within. He opens our eyes to a prize that is so beautiful, so precious, that we now willingly give up everything that held us back before. If only we could gain him. He offers us a treasure that is now suddenly so attractive to us that all else pales into insignificance beside it. It's the only way our rebellious nature can be overcome. But how does he do it? You don't imagine all the contestants on Fear Factor agreed to do the show just for fun, do you? Of course they didn't. They were offered a prize. They were offered a hefty sum of money to compete. And the lure of that cash prize was enough to make them overcome their repulsion towards the task they were asked to do. God does something a little like that with us. He offers us a prize. But he does it through his word, the Bible. The very next verse in John 6 goes on to say, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The Bible holds out a prize for all people to seize, Jesus Christ. It may come as a surprise for some people, but the Lord primarily draws people to himself, not through miracles, signs and wonders, but through his word, the Bible, and through his words contained in the Bible. We've seen it over and over and over again in John's Gospel. Miracles were ineffective in bringing people to put their trust in Christ. John Piper says, The natural person can see many amazing things about Christ. Judas certainly did. But the natural person does not discern Christ's compelling worth and beauty. The gospel of Christ is folly to them rather than their greatest fortune. Christ is not the treasure hidden in the field that we sell everything to obtain. He is not the pearl of great price. He is not of surpassing worth, but by comparison makes all seem like rubbish. That's precisely where we stand before the Father draws us to Christ. He draws us to Christ by revealing Christ to us in the Scriptures. And in the Scriptures alone, we most clearly hear and learn from the Father. It's the scriptures that plant saving faith in us by the operation of the Holy Spirit. As Paul puts it in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing. And how does hearing come? Hearing comes through the word of Christ. I think this business of being drawn by the Father, chosen, elect, is worth exploring in a bit more detail. It's controversial and many people complain that it's unfair. 
So I think maybe we'll come back to it next week and look at it a bit more closely. It should be the greatest comfort for Christians. But instead, it's often the greatest point of contention. The upshot of what Jesus has been saying and Paul says and John Piper said is that if people won't believe the scriptures based on what the scriptures say, if they won't believe Jesus, they won't be saved. So what is it that God sees in people that makes him decide to reward them like this? Surely he he sees something good in them, something that would cause him to rescue them. Are these people more righteous than other people? Are they more intelligent? Do they maybe have a better understanding of their need than other people? As a Christian, you should know the answer to that. What is it that he sees in people to extend grace to them? What is it that he sees in us? Not very much, as it turns out. That passage in Ezekiel also says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Really what God should be doing is punishing, not rewarding us. But that's the thing about grace. Grace is not a reward. It's not a prize for good behaviour. It's not wages earned for doing the right thing. Grace is a gift. It's a gift given to those who deserve the exact opposite. By its very nature, grace is not something that can be earned, nor something that we can demand of God. Rather, it's something God extends to those who oppose him, to those who rebel against him, to those who reject him, because he has chosen to set his love on them. And when God decides that he wants to overcome the unbelief of any particular person, he draws them to Christ. If he did not do that, not a single one of us would ever come to Christ. Notice that Jesus didn't say, no man may come to me. Rather, he said, no man can come to me. There's a big difference. The difference is one of permission versus ability. God hasn't refused to give permission to people to believe. Everyone is invited. And those invitations are genuine. The scriptures make clear over and over and over again in so many different places. It's not that they are not allowed to come to Christ. Rather, it's that they can't come. They don't have the ability for to come to Christ would mean going against their very nature, their desires, their preferences. That's why the Jews refused to believe in Jesus. That's why Jesus said, you have seen me and yet do not believe. And later on in John's gospel, he records, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It's a sad record of rebellion and unbelief. In their arrogance, they were convinced that they knew it all. 
They were convinced that God owed them salvation. They who were so convinced that they could see were actually blind. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who did not see may see and those who see may become blind. Their saviour, their messiah, stood before them displaying his wisdom, his grace, his miraculous power, his profound teaching, and they rejected it all. And it wasn't enough for them just to reject him. They mocked him as well. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I've come down from heaven? Their own headstrong opinions about the ordinariness of Jesus' family line wouldn't let them get past to believe in Jesus. Even his miracles couldn't convince them. Don't let that be a barrier for you. Don't fall for the line that Jesus was just a good man, a good example. He is more. He is so much more. He is, in fact, God. And unless you come to him, unless you believe in him, the only thing you face is eternal condemnation and punishment. And justly so. The decision is yours to make. And making that decision is the evidence that God has drawn you to Christ. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, if you have never put your trust in him, there's good news for you. You don't have to suffer the eternal fate of condemnation. What is it that Jesus says throughout this passage in John chapter 6? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. This is not limited or restricted. Jesus promises to receive all who come to him and trust him for salvation. If you've just come to him or if you've put your faith in him in the past, there is more good news for you. You are safe in his care. Not only will your hunger and thirst be satisfied, here's what else he says in that passage. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. But I will raise it up on the last day. If this was the only place that the Bible talked about such things, you might be inclined to dismiss it, even as clear as it seems to be. But it isn't. It's the consistent record of the Bible. Those who come, truly come to Christ, are secure. They will never be cast out. They will never be abandoned. Dare I say it, the Lord himself will never allow them to stray so far from the path that they fall away to destruction. That should give you great comfort. Do you realise that you are a gift from the Father to the Son? Have you ever thought about that? You are a gift from the Father 
to the sun. It's inconceivable that the son should misplace such a precious gift that his father has given him. And it's equally inconceivable that the father should only give this gift to his son with some of the parts missing. Instead, all that the father gives me, all that the father gives me, will come to me. Not just some, but all. When he calls, when he offers salvation, it's genuine, it's real, and it's effective. When the Father calls people to his Son, they are a gift that will be both given and received in its entirety. That's the beauty of the doctrine of election. That's the beauty of what Jesus was saying in John chapter 6. If he has called you, he will ensure that you come. He will overcome your rebellion and your unwillingness. It's what he's promised to do. He's promised to do the things that not one of us can possibly do because it goes against our nature inherited from Adam. But he can do it. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, but you are born again by the Holy Spirit. And your heart is changed by God himself. Will you be part of that all that is called to believe for eternal life? I'm confident all of you here have become part of that all, that you are all here a gift of the Father to the Son. But for anyone that may be listening to this later on on their Facebook or on podcast or some other way, now is the time to turn to Christ, to come to him for salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, now. For he will receive all who come to him and believe. Guaranteed. Thank you, Father, for the precious words that you've given us in the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance that when we're in your hand, none will fall out. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence that gives us to approach you, to boldly approach you. Because, Father, you have set your love on us in such a way that we have seen the beauty and the worth and the glory of Christ and come to him and believed. And by that very action, Lord, you welcome us into your household, into your family. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son and the gift that we are to your son, that you have chosen us for that. And Father, now as we prepare to share in communion, pray, Lord, you'll write these things deep on our hearts, that there'll be an assurance and a confidence 
and the humility born out of this great and gracious gift that you've given us. And we set our hearts even more firmly, Jesus, to follow after you. And Holy Spirit, we we invite you to continue and make complete that work of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray for our family and our friends who haven't yet come to Christ. Lord, would you call them? Father, would you call them? Would you open their eyes, Lord, to the precious prize that is Jesus Christ, the precious gift? Would you cause them, Lord, to see such value and worth in Jesus Christ that they would willingly give up everything if only they could gain him? Thank you, Father. We put them in your care and we trust, Lord, that you will call them and that you would make our joy even more complete by seeing our family and our friends as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. invite John to come forward now and uh, share with us around the communion. If you haven't yet collected... um, the, the little cup and the bread sample. Um, please take a moment to grab to get one now. And um, John, thank you. Thank you for that. That was uh, that was great. We um, I mentioned last week we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper uh, each week uh, for four weeks. This is the second week, and in doing so, I wanted to run through the four different views different sort of understandings of what's taking place in the Lord's Supper. Uh, And I mentioned I'd like you to think about what are we actually doing when we have uh, the bread and the wine and how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper. So last week I um, sort of brought up the the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. I mentioned that the, the prefix there, trans, just means to change. So we're talking about the changing of the substance, the bread and the wine changing into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, according to the Roman Catholic view. This week we're going to look at the uh, the doctrine of consubstantiation, which is uh, basically Martin Luther's view and, and that of the Lutheran Church. Um, now that prefix con means with. So unlike trans, we're not talking about a change in the substance. Instead we're talking about with the substance. So consubstantiation is the view that the substance of the body and blood of Christ are truly and substantially present in with and under the elements of the supper, but that they are not the elements themselves. In other words, Christ is truly physically present in the Lord's Supper. And that's one thing both will have in common, that Christ's presence is physical in the Lord's Supper, the Roman Catholic view and the uh, the Lutheran view. But neither Luther himself nor the Lutheran church would affirm the name consubstantiation. It's just sort of the, the term that's been developed over time to sort of differentiate, define the meaning, and there's also a bit of sort of uh, differing views within Lutheran Church about how that takes place. But Luther ultimately rejected transubstantiation for a range of different reasons. Um, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk, uh, and while he's often credited with starting the Roman, uh, sorry, the, the Protestant Reformation, his intention wasn't to cause a, a breakaway church, a split in the church. Um, it was instead to reform the church practices back to that of the Bible. Um, so this meant that Luther's approach wasn't 
so much about starting from scratch and building a church from scripture alone, but instead looking at each practice and referring to, to the scriptures and amending it to suit. Um, that's ultimately one of the reasons why Lutheranism still tends to look a little bit on the outside like Roman Catholicism, the bells, the smells, the, the garb, that sort of stuff, even if the theology behind the scenes is quite different. Um, now, due to Rome's theology of transubstantiation, some pretty idolatrous but absolutely understandable practices started to emerge, uh, one of which is genuflection. You might have seen this before. Um, it's the bowing or kneeling in the direction of the bread and wine upon entering a church, a Roman Catholic church. Um, after all, if it's the literal body and blood of Christ, um, it would be an act of worship to bow in reverence. Um, and to avoid spilling the wine, so this is sort of 1400s, 1500s, to avoid spilling the, the wine, um, the priest would often deny the cup to the parishioners, to the members of the church. Um, you wouldn't want to be spilling Christ on the floor. Uh, so he would deny the cup and over time also deny the bread to the members as well. Now, Luther rejected that, understood that members should be participating in the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. Um, he also started to reject the superstitions and practices like the genuflecting and those sorts of things that sort of started cropping up because of that theology of transubstantiation. But ultimately, his biggest rejection of transubstantiation was because he understood that the Lord's Supper was not a sacrifice, as is understood in Roman Catholic theology. It's not a good work. It doesn't increase our justification to speak in Roman Catholic terms. Uh, he regarded the belief that the priest could sacrifice Christ, sacrifice Christ every time he prays a prayer of consecration as abhorrent. So Luther's basic argument, and it's actually pretty simple, so I'm going to read a few scriptures here and uh, see if you can kind of pick up what he's getting at. Genesis chapter 1, you should all, all know this. And I'm going to keep it real brief because we'll probably know the context of these verses. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. John 4, Dad mentioned it this morning, um, speaking about the, the royal official whose son was, was ill and dying, um, said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son is alive. John chapter 5, again, Ian spoke about it this morning. Um, the lame man at the, the pool of Bethsaida there, Jesus said to him, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Finally, Matthew 26. Now, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many uh, for forgiveness of sins. So what's the connection? Well, Luther rejected transubstantiation because he considered unnecessary speculation based on philosophy, that Aristotelian philosophy of substance and accidents I mentioned last week, but not based on scripture. But if Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, then it is his body and it is his blood in Luther's view. Um, we don't need to speculate further about how it's his body or how it's his blood, just that it is. Now, so both Luther and Rome will affirm the physical presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, but they affirm it very differently uh, with very different theology and different consequences. 
So the question is, was Luther right? I mentioned last week that there are four different views. I think there is a correct view. Again, I don't think it's Luther's view this week. It wasn't Rome's last week either, I don't think. The early church was forced to delve into the scriptures pretty heavily in the first sort of four or 500 years from the resurrection in response to false teachings and heresies that began to crop up, spring up. Um, and often the most, the biggest, the most consequential heresies were those that had to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, for example, the heresy of Arianism. It's the heresy that Jesus wasn't fully divine. Instead, he's a created being. So is man just like us, but is not God. Now, that's the heretical view of the Jehovah's Witnesses today. Docetism. That's the opposite heresy, where Jesus is divine, but is not man. He only appeared to be man. Um, that's quite closely linked with uh, dualistic religions, Gnosticism, the whole idea that spirit is good, but flesh, the physical, is evil. And if Jesus is good, he can't be flesh. That's often linked with things like New Age thought and, and, and Buddhism and those sorts of things. Apollinarianism, the heresy that Jesus was a mixture of divine and human. So that is, he's neither fully divine nor fully human, but kind of a, a blend, a third substance. Not quite God, not quite man, but something in between. Um, but the most relevant is Nestorianism. Now, that's the heresy that Jesus is two separate and distinct persons, one of them divine and one of them human. Now, this is a rejection of one of the most beautiful, powerful, and, and absolutely essential Christian doctrine, doctrines, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, boiled down, says that the Son, eternally God, took on a full and true human nature making him fully and truly God and fully and truly man. One person, two natures. So the Chalcedonian definition uh, in the 5th century is a confession of the early church which tries to reject a lot of those heretical views I mentioned before but affirm the biblical understanding of one person, two natures. It's pretty technical. It is really worth your study, your time and effort to, to learn what it's saying and why. But it reads, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we with all, uh, all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father, as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages. But yet, as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ 
even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So you probably saw in there a rejection of a few of those heresies outright. So what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, if Christ is truly divine, we can safely say that he is omnipresent, that is, he is everywhere, according to his divinity. After all, God isn't limited by time and space. But if Christ is truly human, human like us but without sin, well, humans are physical. Humans are limited to a physical location in space and time. A single human can't be physically at the same time in millions of churches across the world. Humans sleep. Humans weep. Humans hunger and thirst. Humans die. Perfect knowledge is not a human attribute. Do these things sound like Jesus when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago? He did all those things. We never see Christ bodily in multiple places at once throughout the scriptures. But we do see that Christ is now bodily, physically, at the right hand of God. An example, Paul speaking according to Christ's humanity says in Romans 8 verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So the question is, if Jesus is to be truly human and he is physically at the right hand of the Father, how can he be physically present in the supper all over the world while still being truly human like us? I'll leave that with you to think. I'm not going to answer it for you. I may have already. But thanks to God God for this glorious truth of the hypostatic union. Thanks to God that in Christ we have our perfect representative, our last Adam, our sin bearer, our redeemer. Thanks to Jesus that he hung on that cross and bore the wrath of the triune, the true and living God against our sin and that death couldn't hold him. That his resurrection will be our resurrection on that last day. So I'll invite Ian up to uh, pray for the bread and the wine. Thanks for that, John. That's uh, some tough stuff sometimes to get your head around, but it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Would you stand and uh, join in... In eating the bread representative, the body shed on the cross, uh, sacrificed on the cross for us. And when you're ready, would you take of the cup that represents his blood that was shed on the cross on our behalf? Jesus Christ, who is truly man, but truly God, and able to take away the sins of the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and has taken our place 
and bore the punishment due to us on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. And Father, on the basis of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ on our behalf, we come before you with boldness, Lord. We come before you in our time of need to find again your grace always offered for us, never, ever withheld, never held back. But a grace that not only covers over our sin today, but covers over our sin for eternity. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking these things and making them real to us. And, Lord, we offer ourselves afresh to you this week to follow after you, to serve you, to honour you, to love you, to worship you, and to make your name known. We pray this in the name of the precious Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.